and and so you kind of have this this weird um weird sense of refreshment <laughs> from their conversation even though it's a it's a brutal conversation at times they say some pretty like mean things about each other everyone and welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thank you all for joining us for another episode, for another week, for another season. It is still early enough in the season that we can say we are in the beginning of another season. And if you're a returning listener, you're back with us for another collection of a semester-ish of great scripts to talk yeah. about. And if you're new to the podcast, hey, welcome. We've got yeah. awesome scripts out there and then our discussions of awesome scripts. Maybe it'll turn you on to some new scripts. Maybe it'll refresh your view of scripts you already know. However you come to us, welcome to the early part of season eight of this podcast. Yes, yes. congratulations. You found your way here. Now, welcome to the show. So <laughs> <laughs> we're excited to get the chance to talk to you all again and talk to each other about another great play this week. We're returning to a playwright that we've done before, but uh, not one, uh, we, we haven't done this playwright in a while. It's been a couple seasons, so I'm a excited to A couple of seasons. It's been a couple seasons. It has been almost as wide, I mean, at this point as we hear this moment in the season, it is as almost as wide a gulf as it could be since we've last visited this playwright. <laughs> it's been a minute. It's true. <laughs> but yes, I'm excited to get into our conversation about the play That Poor Girl and How He Killed Her by Jen Silverman. That's right. We previously discussed Jen Silverman and the, and the reason for our joking and laughing here just a few seconds ago was that Jen Silverman was on our podcast for the first time in season one of this podcast. Yeah. I mean, early season one of this podcast, we discussed her play, The Roommate, and uh, Jen Silverman now returns again for a play that I was introduced through introduced to through my work here at the university where I'm a, a graduate student and an instructor. And, and I was introduced to this play and it was just uh, such an interesting, fascinating piece of drama that I was really excited to bring it to the podcast, which brought Jen Silverman to our podcast uh, for a second time across eight seasons. So she is currently a season one uh, discussee uh, playwright and a season eight playwright we have finally made our way back yeah no it's true I'm, I'm excited to get the chance to talk about this play especially because of the themes that are uh, that are in the play that'll yeah. kind of come out the like you know big you know big themes around social media and all sorts of good stuff i'm excited to get to be able to talk about it yeah, that, that poor girl and how he killed her, which, first of all, a great title. I'm sure we'll talk about that. I'm uh -huh, title yep. snob, love the title. Uh, <laughs> but we have, I think, a lot of things to talk about, and this play is just chock full of fodder for discussion. We won't be able to get to it all. We never do. But we will jump into that just as quickly as we can. First things first, we do want to ask everybody who hasn't already done so to consider heading over to patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. That's the easiest way to find us. It's 
all one word, patreon.com slash podcast. Over there, if you haven't done it already, you'll discover that you can become a supporter of the show. And what that means is that you'll commit to a monthly amount to give to the cost of running this show. The tiers are pretty low, pretty reasonable overall. The lowest tier is a dollar a month, $12 a year. Even that is a huge help. And the reason why we ask for that support is that we love doing this podcast, but we don't really have any way to financially support it. We don't run ads on the podcast or anything like that. We are supported by our listeners. So those listeners who like what we do, who feel that it's valuable, will go to Patreon, will support us there. And we are really excited to say, as we are every week, that that is how this podcast is supported and how it continues to live. So if that's something that is worthwhile to you, if you say, hey, I am getting at least $12 a year of value from No Script the Podcast, then I really encourage you to head over there. If you're one of those people who's supporting the show, huge thank you, as we say every week, because you make doing No Script the Podcast possible to do. We could not do it without you. We love this podcast. It's why it's part of our lives. Jackson and I are busy, busy, busy people. So doing the <laughs> podcast is a is a labor of love, if nothing else. We don't get rich from it. We don't get much out of it except for the love of discussing scripts. It's something we both love to do for as long as we've known each other. So that's why we do it. And the reason we're able to do it is because those of you out there who support us on Patreon make it financially feasible for us to do. So thank you for that. If that's not you yet, please think about heading over to patreon.com slash no script podcast and support us over there. Yes, thank you all so much. Means the world to us. Thanks to all our patrons. We'll see you on patreon.com slash no script podcast. And now back to the script. Back to the script. So as we we Jackson and I were discussing before we started recording, the context session for this one's not gonna be very long. So I'm gonna toss that to Jackson and then I will do the uh the summary section. What do we call that? Synopsis. Synopsis. And that one is going to get wild. So stick <laughs> yeah. around for the synopsis <laughs> section. Uh preview, there's a white carpet and there's a lot of blood that gets on the white carpet. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, get excited for that. I'm gonna jump into just a little bit of context to give us some perspective on the play real quick. This play, as we mentioned already, was a play uh, written by Jen Silverman. I'm a little hazy on the date. I think it's 2016 or 2017, somewhere in that range. Um, The productions that happened uh, of this play were in 2017 that I have found, the kind of notable ones. The University of Connecticut and the University of Rochester in New York did pretty yeah, notable the, the productions. The script of this play. we have access to is dated from 2015. So the, this story, the, at least a workshopped version, has been around that long. Yeah, so it's been been around for for a couple of years. Uh, still, still very new play. Jen Silverman, of course. Um, we did a little bit of context for for Jen Silverman already, but uh, they won the the member of or the member of New Dramatists won Yale Drama Series Award, Helen Mirren Award, the Lily Award, um, uh, and continues to to write plays. The Humana Festival uh, was where where. Uh, Let's see. Um, the roommate, roommate was produced. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So. 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 Yeah. Pl- a, a number of awards won by Silverman. Um, and uh, this play continues to be produced in uh, colleges, especially. And we'll kind of get to the theme of why <laughs> um, uh, when we get to the synopsis. But it has a lot of resonance in college spaces. Um, and and those two productions that I mentioned are the ones that uh, I've kind of found some materials on from the shows. Some some pretty interesting productions were done and in both at both the University of Connecticut and the University of Rochester. But a pretty new play, 
it's still kind of coming up through the ranks of the plays that people do. Um, so I'm excited to have the chance to kind of talk about it while it's still in a very uh, relatively early stage of its of its life on stage. And that's true of Jen Silverman, I think, too, as a playwright. Do not be shocked when Jen Silverman continues to rise and rise and rise in terms of uh, what you would call household popularity for the theater. What does that really mean? I mean, not a lot of households household go to popularity. the theater overall, but <laughs> in terms of the theater community, Jen Silverman, right. I think, is really headed on that path. She is a darn smart playwright and Every script I've read of hers has has really impressed me. Um, the two that we've discussed on this podcast, both The Roommate way back when, I love The Roommate, got to see a Steppenwolf production that was awesome, and now That Poor Girl and How He Killed Her are just two spectacular plays, and I've read several others besides that have really impressed. So don't be surprised when Jen Silverman, her name continues to be out there, her plays continue to gain popularity, and, and she becomes one of those folks that is uh, the name is bandied about amongst folks that love the theater. So. I think that's on the way. What do you think, Jackson? Yeah, no, definitely. Maybe like studio apartment familiarity is a better way house <laughs> than household familiarity. Um, but yeah, I know. Absolutely. They're, they're on the rise and, and I'm excited to see more and more plays. Yeah. All right. Well, the synopsis. So I'm going to do my best. Um, this is one of those plays that is an ensemble play and it's it's eight characters and all of them are on a journey, have stuff, individual stuff happen to them as part of their life. And so, you know, I could spend an hour probably doing a synopsis of this play, although at that point I might just be doing the play. So I'll right. try to avoid that. Um, okay, so the the setting for the play is it is the summer, and it is the summer in a upscale, fairly rich community. Uh, Silverman suggests somewhere like the Hamptons. Um, and this is a community where college students are back from the very wealthy, impressive colleges that they go to, the Browns and the Harvards and the Yales. I mean, this is a group of people where at one point New York University uh, or New York City University or whatever is sort of lambasted for being a state school. So is these are those kinds of folks, right? And everybody's back for the summer. And uh, I'll, tr I'll try to do this in a couple of waves so that it makes sense. Uh, initially, we meet Alyssa and Felix, again, college-aged people. They're on a date at a lobster restaurant. Um, this is a place on the coast, clearly, like, you know, Silverman says, like the Hamptons. And um, the date is odd. It is flirtatious. It is uh, uncomfortable in places. Um, the suggestions put forth that this is a very boring place, um, that, uh, that there is some making out that happens later in the date. Um, what we know about that date, though, extends over the whole course of the play. We're going to flash back to this date between Alyssa and Felix several times throughout the play. So I'm going to try to do it all now. Again, these, these scenes are spread out, though. Um, Felix basically says, I'm, uh, I'm an honest guy. I, I have this sort of radical, revolutionary honesty where I just tell people what I think of them. You, you're a spoiled kid, basically. You don't, you're unhappy. You don't know how to have fun. You're very attractive, but you dress like, you know, you're right. He says all this sort of shocking, uh, pseudo-intellectual uh, uh, kinds of stuff about her. And she returns the favor. They they go on like that. Um, eventually, he says that she is not happy in this community, um, that she pretends like she's happy, but she sort of realized the shallowness of her community and her dreams and such like that. This causes her to cry. Um, and that's, I think, kind of the majority that we get out of this date, again, that is flashbacked throughout the play. 
The next scene is we start to introduce ourselves to the other eight characters. Alyssa goes to her friend Bianca, tells her that she was on this date with Felix. That kind of blows Bianca's mind. Um, Bianca has all of this sort of strange physical stuff that she does. She has a rubber band, different scenes that she snaps on her wrist over and over. She has this uh, 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 habit of licking her food or putting the food into her mouth and tasting it and spitting it back out. It's very gross. Um, That then catches on amongst everybody else. She says taste has zero calories. Uh, The very next scene, uh, after Bianca has learned about the date with Felix, Alyssa has said that the date with Felix or tried to express has made her uncomfortable, has made her cry. Um, Bianca doesn't really hear her as she tries to share what this date with Felix has done with her. But Alyssa does suggest that she's probably going to go out with Felix again. Which leads into the very next scene. Bianca is now with Alyssa's younger brother, Connor. Connor is a high school student, the only high school student in the play. Uh, So still much younger than the rest of the group. Um, And Bianca says, I haven't heard from Alyssa. It's been 24 hours. She was going on this date with Felix. I've never heard from her. She has gone missing. Maybe she's dead. She uh, was, uh, basically her and Felix had this sexual encounter at this lobster restaurant is what she told me. Made her cry. Uh, But she's gone missing. They don't know what they're going to do. The next scene, Bianca Connor reach out to their friend Mackenzie or Alyssa's I don't know to what degree you'd call all these people friends is maybe right. up for debate <laughs> <laughs> but they reach out to this popular person Mackenzie known for throwing parties they say Alyssa has gone missing she was on a date with Felix um, uh, also of note is that Felix is not like one of the gang in this community he is a diplomat's son has lived around the world and I, for some reason they're staying in this community for a while um And so he's sort of an outsider. So nobody knows much about him. They all got all these crazy rumors that end up not being true. Now I'm going to try to to move a little bit at a faster pace. That's basically the setup for what occurs through the play, which is that this rumor that Alyssa has disappeared grows and grows as it spreads throughout this group of friends. It it slowly evolves over the course of sort of like a game of telephone as these people tell each other about it to the idea that Alyssa was raped and axe-murdered by Felix after their date uh, at the Lobster Shack. There are protests started. There are uh, campaigns started. They start a Kickstarter justice for Alyssa. Um, And slowly this group of friends, we meet uh, Bridget. She's back from spending time in South Africa. We meet Jordan, who's Mackenzie's boyfriend. He has had a sexual encounter, we learn sort of through the subtext, with their friend Kalen, who is a queer man. And all of these people have various political, social, uh, uh, embarrassment, shame realities with each other. Again, to what degree they're friends and to what degree they're just bandying the power of popularity is sort of one of the questions of the play. To what degree they hold these political opinions. There is a campaign started, Justice for Alyssa, where they dump pig blood on themselves uh, on video. This happens on stage. It all culminates in a Justice for Alyssa party at which, I kid you not, Mackenzie, the host, hands out rape whistles at the door, and there is a photo booth where you can hold an axe and get axe murdered. And so, you know, crazy. That's sort of the tone of the play, right? This wild, dark kind of uncomfortable comedy. Um, Felix shows up at this party, right? Felix, the guy that murdered, supposedly, according to the rumor, Alyssa. And everybody invited him, wants him there. They're so fascinated by him. He eventually, it's actually Jordan who proposes it, suggests that if you really wanted to get justice for Alyssa, you would get waterboarded for Alyssa. 
Felix agrees to be waterboarded on stage um, and people gather around. It goes too far eventually. Some of that because of Jordan's personal journey. I think we'll probably talk about that. Goes too far. Felix is uh, in a pretty serious, dangerous situation. Cries out his safe word to try to get out of it. Nobody's stopping Jordan from this waterboarding gone overboard. And then Alyssa walks in the door. What's going on? I heard there was a party. So clearly this this whole rumor was based on nothing, basically. Um, The final scene is a monologue from Alyssa about how we're not really exactly sure why. It's never made totally clear. I imagine that we'll discuss some potential ideas about that. She has basically just gone on a wanderlust sort of trip. She's been back and forth on this ferry, escaping her life. She's been sleeping under tarps. Um, uh, She called it a vacation in a sort of sad monologue to end the show. Um, But she has returned. So she, she was never murdered by Felix at all. And uh, right. so that's that's the broad scope. Boy, each of these characters probably deserves an hour podcast of their own in, to try to delve into what is going on in their own lives. But this is a, a show about a community of college students back with their high school peers, plus an outsider who has supposedly uh, murdered one of their friends and in in the rumor, how the rumor grows, how the shame uh, is broadcast into the community how they all hold what happened to Alyssa for their own power. Um, and, and that's kind of, that's the broadest sweep of it, I guess. Uh, I'll say on the front end that this is not a play a lot of you will have seen. Um, and a lot of the times we try to do plays that people see and know and have access to. And then sometimes we like to just suggest interesting scripts that nobody, you know, that not a lot of people have heard of. Obviously many of you out there have, but not a lot of people have heard of and say, this is an interesting script to talk about and maybe you'll see it or pick it up someday. Well, yeah, and, it, and it's super interesting, both for the, the content, as you laid it out, like the plot is a fairly complex plot, a lot of people kind of weaving in and out, a lot of power negotiation, which I'm oh super my excited gosh, to talk yes. about. Um, it's, it's also worthwhile to kind of just note the tone and pace of this play as it is a relentless play. Um, yes. It is a fast paced, um, really uh, very tongue in cheek the whole time, very, um, very comedic in scenes, but also very brutal in others. Mm-hmm. Um, just this, this kind of whiplash back and forth of the play, the pace of it picks up really fast. The kind of big themes that Jacob just talked about all are kind of just zoomed into by these characters who live at, at you know, at, at, at Texas texting pace, essentially, just a really fast pace of, of passing word to each other as fast as they can um, and going from the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. So the pace justifies a lot of the action of these characters as they do these pretty... Um, sometimes really brutal things or tell these lies about each other. Um, the, the, there's, there's this kind of fast paced, witty, um, and, and relentlessness to the, to the play that really drives it forward. Yeah. And that's called for, right? I mean, the, the idea that the, the dialogue moves along, that the scene exchanges move along are suggested strongly in the playwriting notes. The other thing that is suggested, which is what I teased before the context section is that the play takes place on a white carpet. I gotta be real honest with you. I have no idea how you would do this because <laughs> white carpet is notoriously stainable. So oh, do yeah. you have a new like stage-wide white carpet every night? I have no idea. But what happens is that all of this food that is chewed and spit up, all of this makeup and all of this this product and this pig blood and the wa- the vodka that is used to waterboard, all the spittle and all of this gross stuff from these 
fast-paced, highly visceral scenes accumulate in the white carpet. And it's not cleaned up throughout the course of the show, so by the end of Alyssa's monologue, the stage, I imagine, is just disgusting. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a really powerful kind of final image of all these things. Everything, you know, all the food that's spit out and all that business, all of it is left on stage at the end to kind of have this. And we, we talk about retinal image, uh, images on this podcast pretty frequently. This would be a dominant one. Um, so so that, that final image of Alyssa giving that monologue all alone on stage after having been in this full court press <laughs> for the whole play and the evidence of it still being on stage on the white carpet is a really evocative image for the final part of this play. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, evocative images are like the bread and butter of this. I mean, yeah. I mean, think about the, the image of chewing the food and spitting it out, and that starts with Bianca early in the show as she's worried about a new diet, and it spreads like wildfire till the whole group is doing it. And by the right. party at the end, everybody is chewing their food for the taste and spitting it out because taste has zero calories. Powerful retinal image. I mean, gross visceral sticks with you and it's it's metaphoric and it's it's it is a commentary on it and and think about the image of the pig's blood dumped onto bridget in this justice for Alyssa viral social media campaign there's 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 a lot of commentary going on around uh, in this play around around things things like those two things you just mentioned right so so, so especially the the there's the scene where uh yeah it's it's Bridget and Kaylin shoot this short video that's gonna go on their Kickstarter or on the Kickstarter to uh, or try to add some support to the Kickstarter um and 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 the scene where Bridget comes out and dumps like a can of pig's blood over herself Kaylin uh kind of hijacks the scene a little bit um. And uh, by the end, and like cuts himself physically with a knife on on camera, which is another alarming image. And and there's some really um, uh, uh, poignant. It's not necessarily subtle commentary, but it's not supposed to be subtle. It's supposed to be like really uh, draw into focus. You know, social media movements and how you know are are we helping when we engage in these social media activism movements, or are we just kind of entering into something that doesn't actually trickle down to the thing that it's supposed to help? Um, in this case, it's a completely fictional thing that it's supposed to try and, or it's trying to help. Right. There's this. This question throughout the play, I'm I'm trying to contextualize it because it's so it's it's fascinating and complex. But I guess I would say that it, it's a question of genuineness, right? I mean, these are people who seem yeah. like they really could use some genuine reality. Like uh, one of the most impactful moments of the whole show to me, this is going to sound silly to those of you who have read it, maybe to you, Jackson, but one of the more impactful moments of the whole show to me, Jordan and Mackenzie, this is like middle of the play. Um, this is the first time I think we've met Jordan. They're discussing lots of stuff. This Justice for Alyssa movement, the fact that their friend Kaylin hit on Jordan supposedly, does that make him gay? All this stuff, right? And Jordan sort of says, we should go on a date night. Just the two of us should go on a date. And the idea of that is like 
outside of this universe foreign to Mackenzie. The idea that yeah. they would go to a restaurant and spend time just together, just like talking and, and engaging with each other is totally foreign. And to me, that's such a powerful moment. It tells us so much about the world that Jen Silverman has placed these characters in. And then, of course, by extension, the commentary about our world that Jen Silverman is making. There is no genuine connection. And so when these political ideas that these college students hold, when this justice for Alyssa thing comes up over and over, it's not expressed genuinely. It's a power play in every scene. Yeah, the power play dynamic is fascinating. It's not quite a stepladder of influence in the in the scenes throughout the scenes, but it's there's a couple that feel that way. Like you get you get the uh, the conversation between Connor and Bianca, or or rather Alyssa and Bianca as the first scene, and then you're with Bianca and Connor, and there's a power dynamic there. And then you have Bianca and Connor calling Mackenzie, and Mackenzie is higher up on the social ladder than they are, and so you have these really stark um, power differentials at play as the characters are are kind of ballooning this uh lie um or this false interpretation of the event a rumor and 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 you just keep seeing how each of these characters go to another scene and appeared strong in the scene before perhaps but in this new scene their power is completely different when in association with another of the characters yeah, I, I don't know if this would offend Jen Silverman. So if, if you're listening, Jen, and this is offensive, I apologize. But I, I tell you what this play reminds me of is a David Mamet play. I mean, what is so characteristic of David Mamet is that every scene, no matter what it's about, is about power. And it is they are stark power negotiations. I mean, that is like David Mamet hallmark are the power battles that go on scene after scene after scene. And this play feels like that to me. Every scene. Every conversation, every possible part of these people's lives, from their sex lives to their relationships with their parents to the, their their interactions with drugs and alcohol to their bo- political beliefs to their ex- their expressions of love for their friends. I mean, every part of their lives is consumed by the negotiation for power with each other, for social power, for showing off their monetary power, for showing off their their power of progressive ideas. I mean, it, it is all power. And to zoom in even closer for a second, just the kind of cool microcosm that is, is that is even further under the microscope in this play, these are all high school friends who went away to college and have come back. And there's this frequent kind of reflecting, especially, I think, especially by Alyssa, um, but that like this, like it's so odd to be back. <laughs> Nothing ever happens here um, versus a lot of the other, the, the other characters come back from really adventurous times and are trying to kind of negotiate power by one upping each other on their kind of adventurous either internships or college experiences or who they've dated or who they've slept with. And all of these things uh, are crashing back into their lives after spending a semester apart. Oh, my. I don't think anyone uh, says that they're they're going to the same college. Not every character says which college they're going to, but a number of colleges are mentioned, and and it seems like they're all kind of crashing back together after having spent this time apart to kind of renegotiate all their friendships and acquaintances again with this new information that they've that they've learned after spending time apart. 
And and that that one upsmanship applies to everything, right? I mean, it's I have this uh, very popular uh, opinion about politics or or society or ethics, and and oh, I definitely believe that, and I believe one more than you do. Oh, right. really? Well, I believe one better than you do, and it goes on and on and on, and it leaves you with the sense of how empty these characters' lives really are. I mean, it is. It's a very, uh, I mean, very a sort of uncomfortable, funny play. Some it's it's very funny, but it is uncomfortable in in the sense of uh, just knowing that there's nothing behind any of this, but a desperation for real connection. Which makes the the way that the date weaves its way through the play really refreshing by the end of it. So there's the first scene, right, where you where you where it sets up a bunch of expectations. You go to a play that's titled That Poor Girl and How He Killed Her and you see this scene with a date happening. That scene ends with um with Felix whispering into Alyssa's ear something about what he did to someone else on a date. Um, and, and he whispers in her ear, there's this big kind of a uh, big sound cue happens, static happens, an order is read as, as up, and then we're, then we're kind of pulled away from that scene. Um, so our expectations are being met for this play so far. Um, we go through a number of scenes, and uh, we, we, the rumor starts to, to get going. And then we return to the scene, and we, we're, we're back in the same moment, and uh, he, he, Felix, in fact, admits that he said something just kind of awful about this girl he was dating's relationship with her dad and and so it's 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 not not certainly not that he killed her and hid her somewhere um which is kind of the expectation at the end of that scene and what proceeds is this conversation about having honest speech with each other even if that speech is brutal um and and so you kind of have this this weird um weird sense of refreshment <laughs> from their conversation even though it's a it's a brutal conversation at times they say some pretty like mean things about each other but the connection and the honesty between them is apparent the scene over and over in the stage directions calls for something uh something big is happening here or something there's a there's a high connection between them um a lot of energy is going between them so so you have this like this scene where a pretty intense conversation sometimes brutal conversation juxtaposed two different times with this uh frenzy of of these uh shallow conversations and one up uh, one upmanship throughout the other scenes of the play yeah i i'm not sure though if i i i i i think that you're right that the the conversation between felix and Alyssa feels different to Alyssa. And we we experience that scene, I think, through her eyes more than Felix's, if only because the title has set us up to be on her side more than right. Felix's, which is, you know, <laughs> so it goes. Uh, but but I'm not sure if ultimately our experience is supposed to be like Felix gets it; he's willing to have deep conversations and not care <laughs> no. about the social implications, whereas all these other students are bad and shallow. I mean, Felix plays his own games too, and you get the sense from page one to the last page of Alyssa trying to negotiate all of these people doing nothing but playing games. In fact, I would venture to... I I certainly could be corrected about this because I I haven't done a read-through just looking for this. But I might be willing to posit that the only moment in the whole play 
where someone tries to genuinely share something that they feel or have experienced is when Alyssa tries to reach out and share to Bianca what the date with Felix has done to her, uh, her emotional and, 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 and sense of safety and sense of, of comfortability and how it has rocked her world. And that the Bianca's response of wanting to play this gamesmanship, use it to get to the party, use it to tell these wild stories about how Alyssa's had this sexual encounter at the lobster shack and all this stuff tells Alyssa something about the willingness of Bianca to genuinely reach back out when that reaching is presented by Alyssa herself. Right now, again, I could be corrected by that by somebody easily, but I, I feel good about that idea that <laughs> there's only one moment where someone reaches out in genuineness. Although now I'm thinking about, I think Jordan may do it Jordan too. is the other one. Yeah, that, okay, that, good. That We're on the have, same yeah. page. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jordan is the other one that could uh, have a couple scenes where he is earnestly trying to be understood. He he engages pretty frequently in in the kind of political aspect of this of this friend group. But there's a couple scenes where he seems to be kind of genuinely, basically by virtue of his just kind of having a breakdown, um, needing something genuine from his scene partners and not getting it by the end of the scene. Um, so, so yeah. Jordan is a fascinating character. The whole way this play is structured is so interesting because the climactic sort of confrontation, everything changes, everything is wound up to this moment is what? It's Jordan waterboarding Felix. And yeah. that has nothing to do with Alyssa, who's like the title <laughs> character of the show and in the first and last scene. And so much of the play is about her in terms of what drives the plot, but she is not in it. The climactic yeah. big moment that everything leads to, really to me actually, is when Jordan takes over the waterboarding from Kalen, who initially had begun it. He says, I'm going to do it. Kalen says, no, I'll continue. And Jordan sort of forces his way in, which is a big moment for him as a character. And then he overdoes it. He, he doesn't show the same restraint that Kalen's. All this stuff, right? That's the big moment. And it's between Jordan. It's really a Jordan moment. And Jordan yeah. doesn't appear till like halfway through the script. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. That that scene in general, like there's so many like little political negotiations that go on in that scene. At first, it's Jordan is trying to suggest that Kalen be waterboarded for Alyssa and Caleb's on or, or Kalen's on board because because Jordan is, is is mad at Kalen for a variety of reasons, not least of which they're both hitting on Felix at the time. Let's clarify that a little bit. So. Jordan uh, Jordan and Kaylin, prior to the action of the play, I think I said this in the synopsis, had some sort of sexual encounter. That's all we really know. Apparently they both said it meant nothing. Jordan then goes back to Kaylin to say, "Don't basically, don't you ever think about me? If I were gay, would you want to date me? Kaylin says, no, I wouldn't. I'm not attracted to you. He says some really mean things about Jordan, ultimately. And that hurts Jordan. I'm not sure Kaylin picks up on the fact that that was a moment where Jordan genuinely reached out. See, I've been disproved already. <laughs> but uh, and it uh, it so that hurts Jordan. It, it sort of drives Jordan's plot through the rest of the play, ultimately till the party where Kalen, who's very attracted to Felix, which of course makes Jordan jealous. Jordan and Kalen then both sort of hit on Felix, and Felix is much more interested in Jordan, and that drives a lot of the sort of controversy in that final moment. 
Yeah, yeah. So so you so you have that kind of tension fueling that that moment and they all they're all engaging uh trying trying to kind of get get various goals met whether whether it's Jordan's goal to continue to kind of be mad at Kalen and get to waterboard him uh somewhat or it's Kalen's uh you know wanting to to kind of have uh interesting experiences or it's Felix's kind of dominance of this this is this, this uh freshness or outsiderness that he wants to always be in the middle of what's happening. There's a whole bunch of negotiation that happens in that scene that brings about the climax of the waterboarding going too far. See if you agree with me here, Jackson. It feels to me like when Jordan initially suggests the waterboarding, this is the result of a longer sort of subplot of the play where they're all using their positions on torture and on the Zero Dark Thirty movie, which was much more popular when the play was originally written, uh, to, of course, one-up each other in their social and ethical uh, standpoints. It's extended throughout the play, and it leads to this moment where Jordan suggests that um, that 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 Kalen ought to be waterboarded in a justice for Alyssa moment. This is the result of Kalen telling Jordan one of the reasons he's not attracted to him is that he's not very political. Jordan's been trying to disprove that all play. So it leads to this moment, right? And my question to you, Jackson, is it feels to me that Jordan's expectation is that Kalen is going to say, no, that's nuts. And that is what the victory is going to be for Jordan in that moment. And Felix then throws that monkey wrench in of saying yeah. he's willing to do it. Oh. Yeah, right. Right. It seems it seems like he's he's just trying to dismantle or or one up or show that J- Jordan I'm, I'm talking about Jordan is trying to show that he understands activism better. Um and and kind of critiquing the the pig blood videos and and the the videos that have been kind of going around around that and saying if you were actually using the analogy right, you'd be waterboarding and talking about torture or or something like that and trying to kind of shift the debate that way. And and yeah, it, it is it is derailed by the fact that Felix says, "Well, I'll do it." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so again, Kalen, like, he responds. I mean, he's only got one line, but it feels, uh, if if I were coaching an actor, I think the subtext is hesitancy or this is ridiculous whereas in his response to this idea. And then Jordan's got this note from the playwright about how he's tasting victory. And to me, that says this was the victory, that Kalen's not going to be willing to do that. So he's going to have won this one-upsmanship, gamesmanship battle of, of politics and commitment to a cause that they all play with each other and he's going to have one and then Felix just says I'll do it and now there is no plan right there's no how what are you going to do now there's no plan moving forward this was not how this was supposed to go yeah which is also fascinating um given that at this point of the play all the characters and and maybe we the audience still think that Felix killed Alyssa right <laughs> so so there's this this other aspect well, of Well the- I I do think that we as the audience know that the rumor has exploded I mean we know what uh, Bianca believes in the very beginning of the play, which is just that she hasn't heard from Alyssa. I mean, we get the way that the story develops. I'm not sure we actually believe Felix killed her. I think we understand that that is a wild sort of speculative story that has grown because of how popular we've watched it grow in that game of telephone way. But we don't know what's happened to Alyssa. I mean, we know that right. she's missing and that she said she was going on a date with Felix. 
Yeah, yeah. So so there's this kind of like oddness <laughs> of having Felix volunteer for the for the the role of the waterboardy. Um and 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 then the characters kind of in enacting it even in this kind of uh as as if Felix is advocating for Alyssa by going through this action. It's just super convoluted in that scene and, and it just kind of uh uh highlights even more so this this wondering around like what are we actually doing when we're engaging in these spectacle-based um social movement sorts of things. No, you're, and you're whether totally it helps. right, right? I mean it super highlights the total disconnect of a move uh, of this kind of spa- I love the way you put that spectacle based movement is totally disconnected from Alyssa. I mean, what in the world does this have to do with Alyssa's potential murder and disappearance? Nothing. Not to mention the fact that the person that they believe murdered her is right, right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, this could this, I mean, you could imagine this scenario being about punishing him because they all believe that he was the one who did it, right? But the opposite is true. They're all impressed by him. So much so that Alyssa Long, her name, becomes the safe word in this bizarre torture scenario. Right, which is wild, <laughs> because because also because Felix has has kind of stated before that he can't keep Alyssa's name in his head. Um, so so he I think he even as he's saying it, he doesn't know he's talking about Alyssa or really what's going on with the movement thing. He's a little out of the loop as far as the whole uh, justice for Alyssa movement. Um, uh, in this friendship group is so he has no idea really. Um, so so yeah, so the the fact that that is picked as the word uh, for the safe word to get him out of waterboarding is another just. Delightful and and terrible irony um, for for to kind of come about through the action of the play. Yeah, it, it's so. I mean, it's a beautifully crafted metaphor because this spectacle based protest demonstration it's all performative right we talk about that in our society right what about these sort of ethical social dilemmas that we face what are people doing that's purely performative and has nothing to do with actually addressing the root causes of problems one of the sort of understated moments that I love in this play is the very initial response to Alyssa's disappearance that's suggested by I think it's Mackenzie is that they start a kickstarter for her which is like what are you going to do with that money? I don't no idea what it's for. It's right. it, that there's a level of disconnect even there, right? In the initial idea. And then that is slowly discarded by everybody else who say things like, well, there, the connection of blood money to that. And it, it's all socially problematic. All this sort of progressive double speak that is criticized across a lot of the play. But in the party, they, they all are making fun of Connor and Bianca for this Kickstarter, I guess. And Connor says something like, well, we raised like $50,000 or, that may not be the exact number, but it's some crazy number that's like money that could actually make a difference. I don't know exactly what for, but this sort of stupid idea that was discarded from the beginning of the show has actually done something at least concrete in raising some money, whereas all the rest, I mean, so it's, it's, it's so layered is why I like that, that metaphoric moment, this, this, that's inserted into the end of this show when all of this has evolved and built and exploded into to this crazy thing. Right, right. The kind of wild scene at the end. And again, the 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 carpet having been completely stained at this point is a visual representation of that. So many great layers to the play. Um, I, I, one of the great layers that I wanted that we kind of teased a little bit and I want to be sure we land on just a little bit is talking about Alyssa, who um, kind of 
is is a, a certainly a pilot character. It's not quite a protagonist, but we're, we we spend a lot of time with Alyssa, and the only character that we spend time alone with. Um, so so there's there's certainly some weight to she gets Alyssa's the first character. and the last scene. I yep, mean, how yep. can you wait a character more than that? Now she's not in like the whole middle of the play, but she is in right. the beginning and the end. And she's, uh, you know, a, a character who is talked about frequently yes. in almost every other scene. Um, Alyssa is mentioned by the other characters. And she goes on quite a journey. I liked your distinction at the back, back a little while ago about how maybe she gets something out of the conversation with Felix, even though Felix is perhaps posturing uh, and, and maybe a little bit vapid in some of his, in some of his uh, uh, defense of his worldview. But she gets a really honest experience out of it and then goes on this... this uh, uh, vacation, she calls it, or this trip as a response that kind of takes her out of her norm and and tries to get her into a new perspective. But but yeah, how does she land in this play? Well, I, I just real quick, I want to start with the 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 comment about her getting something honest from Felix because I do think that Felix in the, so again, this is the date between Felix and Alyssa. It's separated, I think, into three scenes, although it's all the same time, and flashback throughout the play. This is the final one where they've been playing this basically honesty chicken. You know, how what what shocking uh sort of direct thing can I say about you that seems like the kind of thing nobody would say about each other. And Felix has sort of ended the game by saying, look at all this stuff you've built up around yourself, all these friendships and this this life that you realize is not making you happy. And that really strikes home. And I do, it's possible, I think, for two things to be true at once. One, that Felix was right and said something true that genuinely impacts Alyssa and her sense of the world, while at the same time not being genuine about it himself. Not It's not the kind of game that he says it is of honesty. It's a game of posturing just as much as anybody else's is. But he did, at that moment, get at something true, which impacts her and puts her on this journey. And one of the things that's curious about the play is that we don't get to go on that journey very much with her. And the way that her her scenes, I mean, she's in a few scenes, although one of them just at the very end, the party scene, but they're so come uh like mixed up and i don't know sort of uh, kermuffled on timeline <laughs> that it becomes hard to track for example i'm not sure that you quite catch unless you really carefully study that the thing that felix says about her you're not happy is what she tries to reach out and express to bianca she says something to the effect of have you ever felt not and then the word suggested is happy although i don't think she actually says it that's not quite right but that's close and so i'm not you really have to make that connection that what felix said about her is impactful to her enough that she tries then to move on and express that to somebody who's actually close to her or in this bizarre world that they all live in whatever close means to bianca right. and and she, that that does not go well, right? That approach for a genuine, can I take this experience that I've had and have a genuine discussion where we're both vulnerable about it and that can't happen. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's fascinating. Even the way the way Bianca uh, reacts to it is she she you know tries to process a little bit what she's what she's saying to him. She says, "I'm sorry, he made you cry," um, and that's like just not where Alyssa is going with with the with the conversation. And and I think that's part of the sort of journey she ends up going on when she just kind of leaves this group of friends is to try to find 
something else. She says she dressed differently. She tried to feel different as she went, um, but kind of had this. Uh, the the last scene is just like appropriately heartbreaking. Um, there's there's a number of kind of stage directions that kind of lead us into how heartbreaking it is. But she just like the 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 final stage direction is Alyssa smiles. It's terrifying. It's terrifying, and she takes a deep breath. So there's this like deep sadness in Alyssa that she is kind of come become acquainted with. I think by the end of this play, through the through the the meeting with Felix and through the time away from this friend group, she she's acknowledged this sadness. Um, and and maybe there hasn't been you know any any continued grappling with it, but there's been a little bit, and and you kind of you kind of hold that with her, but you you still leave her kind of in the midst of it, um, without without much conclusion to it. And I think it's it. I think part of what we experience in the play is that that thing which Alyssa is made aware of or is at least um, brought to the level of text rather than just subtext, this deep unhappiness, this vapidness of the existence, this emptiness, this lack of genuine connection, that thing that becomes text rather than subtext for Alyssa is true of everyone else too. And so much of what this play is is watching this this thing spread and everybody use it for their own posturing purposes. And you see that genuine disconnect, that deep sadness that that Alyssa makes that one attempt to try to do something about, to reach out to Bianca. She is not responded to in the way that she hopes for. And so as a response, she basically runs away is what we learn about her vacation at the end. I mean, she gets on the ferry, right? Quite literally, leave the island. Go away. But she can't do it. She just stays on this ferry, going back and forth and back and forth. I mean, talk about a metaphor. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, there's plenty of scenes in this play, plenty of relationships in this play that are evidenced of that kind of miscommunication. We already talked about the Jordan McKenzie scene. We've talked about a little bit about um Jordan and Kalen and and how and how they they they're not getting needs met from each other. Um and just over and over you see these these chances <laughs> where these characters could have genuine connection, but either it's the the maneuvering, the kind of political maneuvering or power maneuvering that gets in the way or it's just that they don't share the same language with each other to some extent. Like they just talk past each other and and can't quite land in a space that they actually get what they need from each other, but they just keep going because that that's that's just the pattern that this group has. And it, and it's it's kind of a self-replicating system over and over again. And if you've ever, if listening to this whole conversation at any point, you were like, where are these people's parents? What the <laughs> heck? Well, we get an answer to that. Uh, I think one of the more important lines that maybe can slide by too easily is in, it's in the very first scene with Alyssa and Bianca. And Bianca says that Alyssa's parents aren't back, basically. They aren't around. Alyssa and her high school brother, Connor, are just in this house themselves. The parents are off doing whatever rich people do. Yeah, <laughs> cruising the wherever, making business deals in the wherever. I don't know. <laughs> They're just gone. And we get that we get that affirmed again for someone else's parents in the party scene when we learn that Mackenzie's parents are not around, and so they're all going to go skinny dipping in the hot tub or whatever they're going to crazy th- college student things people do. And and so I think there is this also sort of absenteeism of uh, like a like a family. I don't think we need to necessarily assume that's like the nuclear family, but just like the absenteeism of those people with whom you're ex- you're in the best version of life 
life you make genuine connections with. Yeah, yeah. These people have, have been forced to grow up quickly and are thus having a lot of their own thoughts <laughs> or, or or maybe, I don't know, I don't know, grow up carries a lot of connotations, um, but uh, uh, exist on their own um, uh, quite early. And so they're, they're, they're making their own way. They're making their own thoughts. They're making their own ways that they interact with the world without a, without a you know, a, a, uh, a connection uh, or a, really a safety net of either, you know, parents or a friend group that really holds them or even relationships uh, with, 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 uh, with each other that really hold them. So, so there's that, that kind of alone on, on the sea by yourself sort of feeling that all these characters bounce off of each other, even though they're together for, for however long this summer lasts. One question that I have about the play, and I'll admit that I don't know if this question matters, but I'm interested in your thought, is um, <laughs> what are these people like in their groups at college? Like, I guess my question and more to the root of it is, is this more a play about coming back to your high school friends, people that knew you when you were a kid, and this sort of empty disconnect, problematic, spectacle-based social issues kinds of world that they live in because you're coming back, right? Or is this just about this sort of, you know, potentially this generation of people who are growing up with social media, with the sort of empty connections that are sometimes discussed about the, the world that we live in now? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'd be interested in talking with a group of actors. What do you think this person's like amongst their college friends? Are they like this or is this what they're like because they're home again? Right, right. I mean, to some degree, the answer is yes. Like it, the, you know, it's 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 kind of both, or or at least from an audience perspective, um, you, you know, both of those themes can hit you hard in this play, which whichever one you pick. Um, but I agree that it'd be really interesting to spend some time with the cast and see if this sort of one-upmanship is is uh, particularly telling a story about coming home to a friend group. Um, that you spent four years of your life with, four very formative years of your life with, that you have a lot of history with, um, and and trying to display what what you have accomplished in the last year, because that that's a really interesting uh, commentary to be making, and gives a lot of really good fodder for an actor to be playing with. Um, that kind of uh, wondering about identity and 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 new identity versus uh, pr still still very recently lived but past identity. Yeah, I well, I, I totally agree that the the sort of questions about you know who these people are beyond their encounters with each other too, right? Not just back in college, but like I think you pointed out, the only person we ever get alone is Alyssa. Other than that, we only see these people in context of how they want to be seen by everybody else. And that's part of what contributes to the feelings of emptiness of these people's lives is that we don't ever get a sense of like the genuine person, only the person that they posture themselves to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's 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 so few moments <laughs> where you get to see anything that's like private for them at all. I think, I think interestingly enough, Jordan is kind of the only other one that has a moment where he has this kind of for the audience only look on his face that he manages to hide from everyone else. Um, so, so yeah, there's, there's so, so little of that kind of 
private side or interior monologue or 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 just kind of true emotion um, that isn't being evaluated by their peers that happens uh, with these characters in the melting pot of this summer. Right, like, like uh, 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 Mackenzie and Bridget, one of the side characters we haven't talked a lot about, they're having a conversation about Bridget's time. She apparently was in Japan for some time, and she says how she was there for the Dolphins, the stage direction, with deep tragedy. And Mackenzie, this is such a telling stage direction, trying to sound like she knows. She says, the dolphins, right? I mean, that's the kind of things we learn about each other, just how they want to appear to other people. I know, of the dolphins. I know exactly what you're right. talking about. What a terrible <laughs> thing, right? And that's how we experience these people. And so then we sort of live the experience of only experiencing all this pretend world. Well, I'm afraid that's just about all the time that we have to talk about this play. There's so like there's so many other little things, as Jacob said at the beginning, we could spend an hour long podcast on any like one character, certainly on any one relationship in this play. Um, and there's so many other things we could talk about. This is the end of the show, however, and fortunately, we don't have to end the conversation when the show ends. So we'd love to keep talking to you about this play. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail. No script podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on any of those sites. If you have been in this play, if you've seen this play, if you've read it, if you're going to be doing this play, we'd love to keep talking about that poor, poor girl and how he killed her with you. Absolutely. If you've liked this episode or you uh, want to connect with or like any of our other episodes, consider recommending the podcast to your family and friends. That's really the primary way that this podcast grows. Uh, they can find us on podcast or Podbean. It's a podcast. No, it's not on yeah, 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 yeah. Our podcast is on Podbean and also Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Facebook. Um, if you connect with us on Facebook, you can click the link and it'll just direct you to the page where it plays. It's an easy way to get a hold of us if you've got a Facebook account. Until next week, when we will discuss another great play and have, I hope, another fruitful conversation about it. We will see. But until then, <laughs> I, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast.